Hello, fellow followers of Christ, and welcome to the show that introduces you to the men and women behind history's greatest works of literature. Come along every week as we explore these renowned authors, the times and genre in which they wrote, why scholars praise their writing, and how we as Catholics should read and understand their works. I'm Joseph Pierce, and this is The Authority. Hello, I'm Joseph Pierce, and welcome to this episode of The Authority, when we will be discussing the great G.K. Chesterton, a great favorite of mine, um, and uh, we're looking at the genius of Chesterton. So who was Chesterton, and what's the significance of his life and legacy? Well, we start with just a few biographical facts. Um, uh, amongst other things, I wrote a biography of Chesterton called Wisdom and Innocence, uh, Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton. And uh, as I mentioned briefly in the episode on Belloc, but it's even more so with Chesterton, that I wrote my biography of Chesterton as an act of thanksgiving to uh, God for giving me Chesterton and an act of thanksgiving to Chesterton for giving me God. Because I always say, and I think it's true, that under grace, and obviously under grace, to God be the glory, but under grace, Chesterton was the biggest single influence upon my conversion to Christianity. So whenever I'm speaking about Chesterton, I'm aware of this sense of gratitude which should animate everything I say. So who was he? Well, he was born in 1874 in London, had a happy childhood. Uh, went to the Slade School of Art, which is part of the University of London. So an art school. Uh, most of his friends went to Oxford or Cambridge, but he went to, to, to study art. And Chesterton, by the way, is significantly a good artist. Um, we'll say more about that presently. Uh, he drops out of art school, having uh, experienced the atmosphere uh, of, of, the, uh, of the 1890s. Uh, in uh, the art school in London. And this was the height of the power of the English decadent movement. Uh, Oscar Wilde is the godfather, but decadence in general. Um, so what, uh, Chesterton recoils in horror from his experience of that, and also the experience of some of the very dark and decadent philosophies, such as that of uh, Schopenhauer, which was certainly an influence upon him briefly before he recoiled from it. Um, so then, uh, after dropping out of art school, he develops uh, what we might, what he what he did call, first of all, a philosophy of optimism. So this was whereas he had followed, he never practiced a decadent lifestyle. He said, um, uh, but he certainly entertained decadent ideas and certainly decadent philosophies. And there was a period of time when he took the philosophy of someone such as Schopenhauer seriously. So perhaps we should say a little bit about that. So uh, one of the consequences of the um, the idealism of the philosophies of the Enlightenment went in one sense to uh, ultimately the, the, the positivism of, uh, of philosophical materialism, atheism, that a belief that, 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 that everything spiritual or metaphysical was an illusion or a human construct of, uh, and was not real, uh, that the only thing that was ultimately real was matter. So this is materialism. But then there was a, uh, another branch of modern philosophy, 
which was also atheistic, but not in terms of materialism. Uh, philosophers such as Schopenhauer taught that, that 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 we couldn't be sure that even matter existed. The only thing that we could be sure existed was mind. In other words, that everything could just be a figment of mind. Uh, and that everything we think could be phantasmagora, right? These are things that we make up, we experience, uh, and they're only real insofar as they're, 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 they are from our mind. They, they have no physical reality. So Chesterton sort of, at his lowest point, had sort of at least almost accepted and embraced this idea that even matter uh, didn't matter because it didn't exist. Uh, and that the only thing that existed was mind. But then he recalled in that and he said, well, even if that is true, then the what exists in the mind is not a nightmare, but a daydream. In other words, that I, I can be grateful for the things that I see, uh, the beauty that I see, irrespective of whether it has any material reality, a sunset, whether it be a phantasm or something re real is nonetheless beautiful. So this was uh, this was the beginning of his recoil from this uh, reductionist idealism of Schopenhauer, but, but it, there's nothing ultimately but mind to um, to to ultimately a conversion to the realism uh, under, as understood in the scholasticism of St. Thomas Aquinas um, of Christian conversion. He said, Chesterton said, I hung on to reality by one thin thread of thanks. So this one thin thread of gratitude is what kept uh, um, Chesterton from going insane. In his in his book Orthodoxy, there's a there's a chapter called the Suicide of Thought, and uh, ultimately the conclusion that Chesterton comes to is the suicide of thought, which is what this reductionist philosophy is. Suicide of thought inev inevitably, invariably ends to thoughts of suicide. The suicide of thought ends ends with thoughts of suicide, with despair. Well, Chester was saved from that with one through one thin thread of thanks, and that is rooted in his humility. You've heard me say in other episodes. If you've uh, watched other episodes of the Authority, that th th this fivefold process of of perception, which we get ultimately from. Uh, well, which we, which we see in, in St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa, that virtue, the virtue of humility gives the sense of gratitude. Gratitude opens the eyes in wonder. Wonder leads to contemplation. Contemplation leads to dilation of the mind and soul into the fullness of reality. That is exactly the process that Chesterton follows to conversion. Um, it's because he has humility and refuses to bow before the demon of pride and believe that his own mind is all that there is it's through the humility that he has that sense of gratitude, that one thin thread of thanks that leads him out of the darkness with eyes wide open in wonder to the contemplation that leads to conversion. So he um, meets Hilaire Belloc in 1900, and that friendship would be, would be hugely influential on both men. Um, not enough time really to, 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 to say much more about it. I talk about it a little bit in the episode on the authority of Belloc. Um, uh, and uh, in 1901, a year later, he marries Francis Blog, and they uh, are together till death do them part, with Chesterton's death 30, 35 years later in 1936. And I sometimes say about Francis's importance to Chesterton, 
is what Chesterton said uh, of the in his biography of William Cobbett, the great uh, late 18th, early 19th century political commentator and reformer, historian, um, that he said that, that, that Cobbett's wife was the powerful silence in his life. That you don't see her, but her powerful presence is there nonetheless. And that's true of Chesterton. The G.K. Chesterton whom we love would not be the G.K. Chesterton whom we love if it wasn't for the woman whom he loved, Francis Blogg, the powerful silence in his life. Um, so then we get from 1900, it was, it was when Bellock, Chesterton was first published. He, almost overnight, he becomes a household name uh, as an essayist in the daily newspapers. People love his sense of humor, uh, the way he employs paradox to make people think and see things from different angles. Uh, his positive view of reality. Um, so he, he's very popular. When when um, he he writes a book called Heretics, uh, attacking um, uh, certain leading intellectuals of the day, and someone said, I will take Chesterton's attack on contemporary heretics seriously when he, when he tells us what his orthodoxy is. And that leads to his writing and publishing in 1908. His book, Orthodoxy, which is his first public uh, announcement, if you like, uh, of his Christianity. Uh, by this time, he's an Anglican, uh, following in his wife's footsteps. She's a practicing Anglican. And the book, I sometimes see it as being similar to C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. It's a popular defense of Christianity, looking at the highest common factors that unite uh, all Christians uh, at all times, at least most Christians at most times. Um, I think Lewis says something along the lines of this highest common factor of mere Christianity being uh, that which all Christians have believed at all times or something like that, um, which would certainly be the Trinity um, and um, the incarnation as, as that bedrocks. But with, with Chesterton, he takes the Apostles' Creed so he takes the, the creed the creed of the apostles and sees that as the as as the statement of the core or essence of of a, a, a true and real understanding of life that he follows and expounds upon in orthodoxy once chesterton becomes known as being a christian writer he loses friends he's he's now treated with more suspicion by the secular world that he embraced him with open arms when he was writing about uh, what I found in my pocket, or I'm running after one's hat, or these, or, or the skeleton, uh, or, or these things that were not, should we say, doc doctrinally controversial, not doctrinaire. But once he announces himself as a Christian with orthodoxy, he becomes known as a Christian writer, and then thenceforward, uh, henceforward, is is seen with um, somewhat with sus suspicion by the secular world, though of course loved by Christians. Um, he uh, loses his brother uh, in World War I. It's a moment of absolute devastation for him, actually leading to a period of anger and bitterness, uh, which is uncharacteristic of him. Uh, in 1922, he is received into the Catholic Church. And that is the, 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 um, the consummation of a love affair that had been going on for many years. At this point, many people had already been brought to, to Catholicism through Chesterton's influence before Chesterton became a Catholic himself. There's an irony. Uh, so his post-conversion uh, writings, the most important probably, are his 
his biographies of St. Francis of Assisi and St. Thomas Aquinas, and probably most importantly, his book, The Everlasting Man. We'll say more about that in a moment when I, when I go through the different genre at which he excelled. Um, so Chesterton died in 1936, tragically young at the age of 62, um, and um, was, was named by Pope Pius XI uh, in a telegram on the occasion of uh, his memorial service, Requiem Mass at Westminster Cathedral. He was named by the Pope as Fidei Defensor, Defender of the Pope, uh, sorry, Defender of the Faith. Fidei Defensor, and um, and this was ironic because the previous person to be given that title was Henry VIII, uh, 400 years, more than 400 years earlier. Um, and that was because Henry VIII wrote a treatise, uh, a defense of the seven sacraments of the church against Martin Luther's teaching, for which the Pope uh, uh, gave him the title Fidei Defensor. Ironically, of course, he would then break with the church uh, and make himself head of his own church in England um, and would dissolve the monasteries and convents, put Catholic priests and laity to death um, for not going along with his tyranny. Um, so there's an irony there. And the greater irony, by the way, is that that, that phrase Fidei Defensor still appears on English coins to this day. Um, and when Chesterton was awarded that title by the Pope, the English media were up in arms. How dare the Pope give... Uh, uh, Chesterton, a title that belongs to the king, <laughs> showing the ignorance of, of history when it was the Pope who gave that title to the king in the first place. But uh, again, what an honor and says something about Chesterton's importance that he is the first Englishman for 400 years uh, to be granted the title Fidei Defensor by the Pope. Uh, and unlike the previous person who received it to actually warrant and deserve it. Okay, so there, if you like, the first half of th this episode, we've given you an overview of Chesterton, uh, his life, uh, his importance, and his works. I want to now break it up a little bit in terms of the genre, the various types of writing that he did. I want to begin with Chesterton, the essayist, and we don't really have time to read from any of the essays, but um, I want to allude to some of my favorites. In... Um, uh, an essay uh, called On Running After One's Hat. And by the way, you have to admire Belloc and Chesterton for the, the, the fact they can write essays on anything. In fact, Belloc wrote a volume of essays which is entitled On Anything. Uh, and then he wrote another volume uh, entitled On Something. And another volume entitled On Nothing. Um, and the one volume ultimately taken the whole thing to its logical, uh, if, if somewhat absurd, uh, conclusion. He wrote a volume of essays just called On. <laughs> but they could write on basically everything and did. So Ch Chesterton wrote an essay entitled On Running After One's Hat. Uh, and the, po the point of it, uh, apart from having fun, and there's nothing wrong with that being a, the point of something in itself, is that the reason we find the sight of a man running after his own hat, you know, in the wind, is the absurdity of it. And it's because we treat uh, the human person with dignitas, with dignity. There's a dignity to the human person rooted in the fact we're made in the image of God. Uh, and therefore to see something that's this, this, this person that has inherent dignity that's almost divine doing something ridiculous like running after uh, his hat is, is, is something which uh, it evokes humor. He does say, by the way, that the, he, he can't see how, how running after one's hat is any 
less absurd than 22 men running after a, uh, a ball made of leather. In other words, playing soccer. He's <laughs> obviously not a great <laughs> lover of uh, what the English would call football. And he also says there's nothing, it's not anywhere near as absurd to see a man running after his hat as running after his wife. So again, this great humor. But in the midst of uh, of, of, of that um, uh, essay, there's the wonderful thing, the wonderful uh, aphorism. And Belloc, uh, Chesterton's essays are full of both great paradoxes and great aphorisms. And in many great aphorisms which are also great paradoxes so he says that an, an adventure is an inconvenience rightly considered and we can reverse that of course an inconvenience is an adventure rightly considered how do we cope with things that are inconvenient to us do we do we loathe them detest them does it is it is it is it a near occasion of sin do we lack charity towards our neighbor or even towards god do we curse or do we see it as uh, an adventure? It's a challenge there. So, in the midst of an essay about on, on running after one's hat, we have a, a great, a great aphorism of wisdom which challenges us. He wrote another essay called "What I Found in My Pocket," where he basically he says wonderfully, he says that I can basically, I basically know where everything is in my life as long as it doesn't find its way into my pocket. Once it finds its way into my pocket and into that fathomless abyss, he says, I, I bid it uh, a wistful Virgilian farewell. <laughs> it's never going to be seen again. Again, this wonderful sense of humor. And he talks about pulling all these things out of his pocket, and a piece of string and a pocket knife. And um, and, then he, and then he uses that as a, as a way to go on a flight of fancy about uh, about human civilization. Um, and, and, and each of these serving as a symbol or a metaphor for some aspect of, of humanity and human history and human culture. And of course, right at the end of the novel, he mentions the one thing he couldn't find, and that was his railway ticket. So why has he put his hands in his pocket? Because an inspector's got on the plane, a train, is asking him for his ticket, and he's looking, rummaging through his pockets, finding everything under the sun, except the one thing he's looking for, which is his railway ticket. It's the, the charm. The charm. I think Chesterton. It is, it is, it, 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 Chesterton is charming. There's a Chestertonian charm, which animates his essays, and one of the reasons he's so attractive. But he can write in many different uh, ways. So there's a, also a, a much more serious, uh, hum, absolutely humour-free essay called the called the Diabolist. In other words, the Devil Worshipper. And this recounts a real-life incident when he was at the Slade School of Art at art school. When he meets uh, a decadent who basically is living a debauched lifestyle and getting a pleasure out of the lives of women that he ruins, um, and um, uh, and there's some words he says at the end uh, that if I he's not to him not to Chesterton they have a, an argument discussion about these things, but as Chesterton's passing he hears this man talking to one of the, the least reputable of his friends, so another decadent. And that his friend says, but no one can possibly know. Who can possibly know? And the and the diabolist says, well, if I do that, I will no longer know the difference between right and wrong. Um, so there's and then Cheston wonders, what was the one thing this man's already lived such a dissolute life, ruining the lives of people with his life of lechery and debauchery? What was this one extra thing that even he 
caused that. And we also learned in the course of the essay that this man died and he says we could probably call it suicide, although it was delivered with what we might call tools of pleasure. So whether it's a drug overdose, either, we don't know. So a tragic figure, and one who has succumbed and been seduced by the life of decadence and is killed by, destroyed by it, having ruined the lives of others in the process. From one extreme to the other, we have uh, Chesterton telling uh, another favorite essay of mine it's called The Shop of Ghosts. And this is a story like a fairy story and Chesterton is, says he's got his nose to a window like a child he's an adult Chesterton remains childlike another reason that Chesterton is so charming is his childlikeness um, and he's got his nose to the window in this toy shop looking at all the various toys and he goes in and, and looks around and there's an old man with a white beard behind the counter and he goes up to him and tries to buy one of the toys and tries to give the man money. He says, oh, no, I, I never take money. <laughs> um, I'm rather old-fashioned. I, I, I never take money. And, and, and Chester says, old-fashioned? I thought it was rather new-fashioned to not take money. Surely everybody takes money. He says, oh, never have, never have. He said, well, you might be... So Chester says, laughing, who are you, Father Christmas? Father Christmas, of course, being the British name for Santa Claus. And, and the man replies, yes, I am, actually. I'm, I'm, I am Father Christmas. <laughs> um, he says, but I'm dying. Uh, I, I am dying. I'm sick and I'm dying because none of these modern people, you know, believe in me in the spirit of, of Christmas. And then various characters enter the shop and they get further and further back in time. So Charles Dickens enters uh, the shop, for instance, um, and eventually the oldest person who enters the shop is Robin Hood. So we go right back to the Middle Ages. Uh, and uh, all of them say, oh, Father Christmas, you don't look a day older. Uh, and he said, well, yeah, I know I've always been, I've always been old, always been sick and dying. And then Dickens says, who else? Charles Dickens, Chester, the great lover of Dickens, great admirer of Dickens says, now I understand you will never die. And it's a bit like what Tolkien says, that he says, as a Christian, I see history as the long defeat with only occasional glimpses of final victory. The long defeat is never the final defeat. And, and this, this we see epitomized here in the spirit of Christmas, in Father Christmas himself. Every generation he's dying, but he never dies. And probably my favorite of all of Chesterton's essays, and I've spent a long time lingering on the essays, but why not? Um, is the architect of spears. And this is a, a vision of Gothic architecture. And this time, what, what sets Chatterton's muse flowing uh, is uh, an optical illusion. So he's visiting Lincoln. And he's looking at the towers of Lincoln Cathedral. And all of a sudden, the towers begin to move miraculously across the landscape. And he realizes after a few seconds that it, the optical illusion is that what he thought were sh that the roofs of, of, of shops in the foreground with the cathedral on the hill were actually the roofs of furniture vans. And these furniture vans drive off. But the optical illusion made it look as if that the, 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 the cathedral in the background was one moving. And then there's this whole image of Gothic architecture being the church militant, right? The church at, at war with the world on the march across the landscape of Europe with the towers like giant legs marching with bells clanging with the spires like spears pointing heaven heavenward glorious essay Chesterton the poet well you know Chesterton described himself as a jolly journalist 
And he was. And because he's a jolly journalist, like all journalists, he wrote to deadlines and he had to write in haste. And he could write a brilliant and beautiful essay very quickly. He could sketch beautiful caricatures. And that's the that's the uh, the clue for Chesson as a poet. Chesson as an artist, a visual artist, was a caricaturist. All of his art are caricatures. That's his that's his chosen form. Chesterton would never take the time to paint a meticulously realistic or even impressionistic landscape or a portrait. He did things quickly on the spur of the moment with spontaneity uh, as a caricaturist. Well, he, he, he's a, a caricaturist as a poet. His poetry is written also in haste and often with caricatured uh, grotesques. Um, and we can have here, I think, fairly easily. I can probably find this is a book that I published with Tan called Poems Every Catholic Should Know. I know uh, that Chesterton is in this book. You should take no time at all to read his poem, The, the Donkey. And you will get the spirit of caricature in this. When ashes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I keep my secret still. Fools! For I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Because it's the exaltation of the humble. Christ doesn't choose an Arab charger to, to, for his triumphal march into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. When they're laying palms before his feet, he comes on a humble ass on a donkey. The devil's walking parody and all four-footed things. The exaltation of the low and the humble. But it's written, uh, all of Chesterton's poetry is, uh, well, not all. The vast majority of Chesterton's poetry is clearly written quickly. Uh, they're simple poems, mostly short poems. Uh, and this means that his poetry is very uneven. Uh, he writes some very good poetry and some, some truly great poetry, but he writes a lot of mediocre poetry as well. Um, there's a line in one of his poems called uh, The Sword of Surprise. Give me miraculous eyes to see my eyes, those terrible crystals made alive in me, more, more uh, something than all the things they see. Um, give me miraculous eyes to see my eyes. And a wonderful poem called By the Babe Unborn, which we don't have time to read, but in this age of abortion is more powerful than ever. Uh, the voice of the poem is the child in the womb. Uh, his masterpiece in poetry was The Ballad of the White Horse, a very long epic poem about St. Alfred the Great's uh, saving of England from the pagan Vikings. He wrote another good poem called The Secret People, uh, which is the history of England uh, in a few verses. Perhaps his greatest poem of all is Lepanto, a poem about the Christian victory over the Turks the naval battle in 1571, which probably saved Europe from Islamic domination. And my favourite poem is a poem called The Strange Music, which is one of the most mystical poems on the, on, on the mystery of marital love that I've ever, ever read.
So um, I'm going to say brief, talk briefly about Chesson's other uh, genre in the time we have left. Obviously, we could spend other episodes of the authority on Chesterton, should we wish. But Chesterton, as a novelist, was also a jolly journalist. So his novels also were written in haste, the caricaturist as a novelist, the jolly journalist as a novelist. But in, in spite of that, we have some wonderful novels um, uh, with uh, with great lessons for today. Um, the Napoleon of Notting Hill is uh, about localism versus empire. The Flying Inn is about big government versus local resistance to big government. Man Alive is about um, the, the connection between wisdom and innocence. The protagonist, Innocent Smith, is truly innocent. Therefore, the worldly who are truly guilty think he's guilty. There's the paradox. The Ball and the Cross is a parable about the difference between argue, arguing and quarreling with the two protagonists, the atheist and the Catholic, learning to love each other because of their genuine, authentic love for truth, as opposed to the relativists, who in, uh, in, in the other characters who don't think truth is worth defending or fighting for. And Chesterton, of course, is a defender of orthodoxy. We've mentioned his book, Orthodoxy, and his book, Heretics, Attacking Heresy, and his book, The Everlasting Man, his book on uh, Thomas Aquinas, um, and St. Francis of Assisi. Um, I think that's probably all we do have time for here, that this Chesterton, um, as, an, as, a, as an essayist, as a poet, as a novelist, as a Catholic apologist, um, as an historian, was uh, could write a, across all sorts of genre, all sorts of forms, on all sorts of topics, and always have that great wisdom which is singularly chestertonian thanks be to god for gk chesterton thanks be to you for listening thanks for as always listening to the authority i'm joseph pierce thanks for joining me and until next time goodbye god bless and good reading this has been an episode of the authority with joseph pierce brought to you by tan for updates on new episodes and to support The Authority and other great free content, visit theauthoritypodcast.com to subscribe and use coupon code AUTHORITY25 to get 25% off your next order, including books, audiobooks, and video courses by Joseph Pierce on literary giants such as Tolkien, Chesterton, Lewis, Shakespeare, and Belloc, as well as Tan's extensive catalog of content from the saints and great spiritual masters, to strengthen your faith and interior life. To follow Joseph and support his work, check out his blog and sign up for email updates and exclusive content at jpierce.co. And thanks for listening.